Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them, to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and, what, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an, of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they said to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he, sa he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 3, or Mark chapter 3, Luke was up here, but we're reading from Mark. Mark chapter 3, we're talking about this, the theme of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark is writing about. And in particular, where we've come in this passage in Mark chapter 3 was that last week we saw a big shift. So the crowds were coming to him, he's reached the pinnacle of popularity. Jesus was, has now caused a great divide. The crowds are coming to him in such um, intensity that he's not even able to eat sometimes. And in response to that, he calls 12 disciples. If you want to look with me real quick in chapter, tw chapter 3, just to look back at what we read last time in verse 13. And he went up to a mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him, and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So Mark has told us about how Jesus pulled away from these crushing crowds, and he gives us there, in what we just read, the master's plan of discipleship. The master, Jesus, his plan of discipleship was in just a few parts, if you want to go to that, Alex. Real quick, my mom and dad are here, so I thought I'd show some of my artwork here on, uh, I know you guys are missing it, I haven't shown it for a number of weeks, so I drew something again, and um, parents love to see their kids' artwork, right? So that's mine, my artwork. The Master's Plan of Discipleship, Mark chapter 3, there's two parts of it. You could say there's three, but really there's two. Number one, that, he would, that they would be with him, and then the second part were the, the ministry of word and of deed that he is going to send them out to do. The ministry of word that they would preach and the ministry of deed 
that they would heal the sick, and that they would cast out demons. So this was Jesus' plan to reach the, the, um, the mass thousands of people. It could have been over 10,000 people. At Sometimes he fed four or 5,000 people at one time. So the, the people that were coming to Jesus would be ministered to by these 12. And the plan for discipling them was this. And you see on the left side the with Ness, it's a word that I learned a few years ago, which we don't use very much. Withness was the method by which Jesus gave his disciples both teaching and courage, so boldness. So these two things, teaching and boldness, is what his disciples got by being with him. And then as they were sent to preach, they preached in such a way that people could tell that these had been with Jesus because of the boldness with which they spake and because of the wisdom of the teaching. So this was Jesus' plan of discipleship. Now, how many of you, when you were kids, ever read any of those books, Choose Your Own Ending books? Have you, do you guys know those books? David did and Isaac, yeah? Which ending did you choose? I mean, was, it, was there like a typical ending you choose, the good ending, or you wanted to choose the worst ending to see how bad it could get? Well, I think if the disciples were choosing the end of their story here, you know, Jesus, you can imagine, put yourself in their position for a second. These, these fishermen, these tax collectors turned and repented, um, these common, ordinary men, now they've been called by name by Jesus, and some of them have been given a new name. Now imagine what they're probably thinking. The miracle worker, this um, healer, this Messiah, has called me to be one of his 12. Now, what might they think would happen? Now, if, you, if they were like me, they might have thought, well, um, here's how the ending is now going to look. First of all, all the people that were crushing Jesus before are going to realize now that we're the 12, and they're going to divide themselves up and get in rows and sit in orderly groups and allow us to minister to them now. And the scribes and Pharisees, who before had decided to kill Jesus, they are now going to say they're sorry. And they're going to come, and they're going to now worship Jesus. The Herodians, those political leaders who previously um, had worked together with the religious leaders to conspire to kill Jesus, well, they're going to go back to Herod, and they're going to say, hey, actually, Herod, we found the real king. Let's all just go follow him. And Herod will agree with them that they should do this. And, well, his family, you know, Jesus' family, they're going to realize that he's chosen 12. And they're going to dutifully take their place behind the 12. And though they're his physical family, um, they're just going to be happy to be brothers and sisters together with the apostles through faith in Jesus. That's how the disciples may have imagined it would go. And now that they're given power to heal and to cast out demons, of course, all the demons will submit gladly, and everything will be right in the world. This is how I imagine they would have chosen the end of the story. We find out pretty quick in verse 20 and 21 that it doesn't end this way. If you look in verse 20, Jesus went home. We could imagine because he was in Capernaum that that may have been Peter's home. It was his adopted home. Jesus never owned a home. Um, that the crowd gathered again, and they, still they could not eat. And his family, when they heard it, they went out to seize him, or 
literally to physically grab him because they were saying he is out of his mind. So, um, you know, it doesn't often end the way we think it's going to end when we first start to follow Jesus, does it? I don't know if it's worked out that way for you. I remember a testimony of a, fr of a guy named Hassan that I met. He's from Morocco. I met him before we ever moved to Morocco. He told me the story of how he became a believer when he was on a trip in Spain. He was so impressed by the clarity of understanding finally the darkness he was in in Islam and how he's come to Christ. And he's realized now who the Messiah is. And he's given his life to him and he's just, wow, everything is totally clear. The clouds are gone, the sun is shining, it's blue, and he can see. And he thinks, all of my friends and family are going to receive this because it's so obvious. He takes a box of Bibles back with him to Marrakesh, Morocco. And when school starts, he was over in Spain for a summer break. School starts in the fall, and he starts giving his friends Bibles. By the end of the school day, the police had come and arrested him. And he was shocked. He was like, how did this happen? They brought him to the police station. His parents came. They told him what their son was doing. And he quickly learned that write your own ending to being a follower of Jesus doesn't really work out that way. So as we read this passage, we're going to talk about two costs and a reward of discipleship. So Mark is mainly writing to believers who are in Rome and they're under great persecution by Nero. And they're going through rejection, not only from their nation, but also from families. Even idol worshipers don't like when you disrespect their idols, or polytheists, you might say. And so Mark is writing to these new followers of Jesus around the Roman Empire, and he wants them to know, in part, what to expect as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus. And so today's title for the sermon is When the Good News is Bad News. We often think that the good news is only good news, right? The, the first line of the Gospel of Mark is the gospel or the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We often think that that means it'll only be good news. In fact, when I became a believer of Jesus, it was because my parents had shared with me the gospel and my church had shared with me the gospel. And I often tell my friends in North Africa, that when I became a believer, they had a, they had a, what we used to call when I was a kid, we called them afterglows. Has anybody heard of that? Nobody? Just my church, maybe. We called them afterglows. And you know what I'm saying? Okay, Matt knows what afterglows is. It's the, it's the dorkiest word, I think, ever. But they, we had cake and punch with my whole community to celebrate that I had come to Jesus. And my parents celebrated that I had came to Jesus. And I was baptized in a celebration. And so we might assume that following Jesus is going to be just one big celebration. But we soon learn that there is great cost to discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a follower of Jesus during Nazi Germany, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. So we're going to see in this passage two costs of discipleship and one great reward. So you might say that a subtitle could be this, to be a disciple of Christ will cost you more than you ever thought reasonable, but reward you with more than you ever thought possible. So you could, I think that's worth 
repeating, to be a disciple of Jesus will cost you more than you thought was reasonable, but will reward you with more than you ever thought possible. So here is how that passage is going to share, tell us that today. Um, the first is, first point is the cost of lordship. Now, the main question in this passage is about the identity of Jesus. Is he Lord? His parents, or not his parents, but Mary could have been included. It could have been his brothers that we learned later became believers. For example, Jude, who later became leaders in the church of Jerusalem. But at this point, some of his family, and there's a little bit of ambiguity about who these family members were. It could have just been tribal sort of family, like people from Nazareth, people from his general family. But at any rate, they thought he is crazy. And that's what it said, he is out of his mind. That word, out of his mind, is the word existemi, or it means out of standing, like he is not well regulated. Maybe you could say he's a few, few screws loose, or a few fries short. Anybody know those phrases? Okay. So he, they thought Jesus is interrupting completely the status quo in Galilee, and beyond that, he is making our family embarrassed. And that was a big deal. It's, I have three teenagers, and it is a big deal when they're embarrassed. Even bigger deal was when they're embarrassed in those days, in that type of culture, where family is responsible for anything that a family member does. So his family thought, maybe he is out of his mind, and he's embarrassing the family. Now, the structure of this passage from verse 20 to verse 35 is he introduces us to the family at the beginning and at the end, and in the middle, he tells us about the accusation of the Pharisees, which were representative of the nation. And Mark does this from time to time, where he'll, um, put, he'll interrupt a story and tell something in the middle, and he does that to show us the relationship. Because maybe it didn't happen at the same time, but this is, these two things are closely related. So his family thought he was crazy. Look in verse 22 about what the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is a Chaldean name for Satan. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So two different things. They said he is possessed or literally um, being held by Satan, the father of lies. Now, we have to see here that the struggle wasn't that the Pharisees were so upset that he was claiming lordship in the place of God, but that his lordship would require them to submit to him, who had obtained the power in Judea and in Galilee. So their, I, their, their accusation was that Jesus was not crazy, but actually evil, that he was possessed by evil, that he was possessed by the father of lies. Um, now, Jesus gives no direct answer to this crazy accusation. Um, we can assume that that's not a very strong accusation because being a lunatic requires you to actually be out of your mind, and when you're out of your mind, things are um, not organized. But Jesus was actually bringing everything back into organization. 
sickness, he was making whole, possessed people who were actually out of their minds, he was bringing them to a right state of mind. So assuming that we can say that he was not crazy, he doesn't give a direct argument, or Mark at least doesn't write it down for us, but he does give a counter to the accusation that he is a liar or that he is possessed by evil. And he gives it by the way of three illustrations. The first illustration he says is a kingdom, and he says this in verse 23. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. The second illustration he uses is a house or a family. Um, in verse 26, he says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a, man, a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So in this illustration, Satan is the strong man who is reigning over this house. Someone stronger than him has to come in to bind him, who is Jesus is putting himself as the one stronger than the strong man. And he's saying that it wouldn't make any sense for Satan to cast out Satan. You have maybe heard this trilemma. Now, a dilemma is a, is a choice between two. A trilemma is a choice between three. And this presents to us a trilemma. Either Jesus is Lord, as he says he is, or he is a lunatic, as his, some of his family members thought, or he is a liar, as the Pharisees said. Now, Joe mentioned that when he was giving his prayer for the students, that they would know Jesus as Lord. Because there is Jesus, what Jesus does not allow us to say is that possibly uh, Jesus was a good teacher or someone worthy to be emulated. Um, I thought about starting this sermon out today and getting up just kind of cold turkey and saying, I'm God, and the only way to heaven is through me, and you guys need to believe on me, and if you'll believe in me, then you can know the Father, because I'm the only one who knows him, and you guys can know him through me. Now follow me. And I just thought about giving no context for that. I figured that since I'm new here, I probably shouldn't do that. But you can, this, is basic, this is what Jesus was saying about who he was. And so um, many of you, if you've read C.S. Lewis, recognize this trilemma, Lord, lunatic, or liar. These are the options that Jesus gives us. Actually, this trilemma started before um, C.S. Lewis, and one writer, Watchman Nee, wrote um, in 1936 something that I think is worth reading. Watchman Nee was a uh, Chinese believer and pastor. He said this, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. Third, if he is neither of these, he must be God. You can only choose one of these three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of those two, you have to take him for a liar. There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. If he is neither, he must be the Son of God. I want you to think for a second about that last statement. All we need to do is think or prove that he is not a lunatic 
I gave you some reasons that Jesus was not possibly a lunatic or a liar, and the prophets and all of their prophecies give us a lot of confidence that Jesus was not a liar. And then the only other choice that his claims to be Lord give us is that he was the Son of God. In biblical theology, we have to ask ourselves then, what is Jesus talking about in verse 28 through 29? Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on this idea of the unforgivable sin. I don't know if you've ever worried as a new reader of the Bible if you've committed the unforgivable sin. But here in verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whoever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has, his forgiveness, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I've heard people say that this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could be using the Holy Spirit's name in vain. If you do that, you have an unforgivable sin. In the context of what Jesus is saying here, he is basically saying that if to attribute the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan, to call God and his works evil, is a sin that cannot be absolved. So no one can oppose Christ and be forgiven. Anyone can be forgiven for any sin. However, if you do not receive Jesus as the Son of God and the works that he did as being the Spirit of God working through him and you reject that, then no matter what you have done or not done, that one sin can never be forgiven. To not receive Jesus and the works of the Spirit through him is the unforgivable sin. Jesus is saying, the reason he said this is in verse 40, for they, said, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I want you to notice the similarity between verse 21 and verse 30. In verse 21, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Mark is trying to show us that these were the two options. Now, many centuries later, a fourth option was proposed, mostly by the um, higher critics of Germany and then later of the UK, and it's made its way all around the world right now, which is to say that Jesus actually never claimed to be the Son of God. So if you can cast doubt on that, then you can get rid of the trilemma entirely and say, actually, he was a good teacher. He never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, one way to interpret Scripture or any ancient text to know what a person really said was to see how the people who were present reacted. This is one of the ways that I talked to my Muslim friends about Muhammad. What did he mean when he talked about jihad? Well, you can't look at present-day Islam or different variations of Islam. We have to go back to how... The, follower, the early followers of Muhammad understood that and how they acted on it. If you understand those first generations of uh, followers of Muhammad, then you can understand what exactly Muhammad meant because the people who were there understood in the context what he was saying. So the enemies of Christ in this time, understanding in the context what he was saying, clearly understood that he was saying he is the son of God. There was no fourth option of maybe he's just a good teacher for them. They were left only with these two options. He is either lunatic or a liar or he is Lord. So the first cost is, for a disciple, is the cost of lordship. Like the Pharisees, to follow Jesus as Lord is to follow him as Lord of my life. It's to say that not only is he Lord in the sort of cultural sense, 
but that he is my creator. And in that he is my creator, he is due all of my allegiance. Meaning, first of all, that any pressure I get from family to not follow Jesus will be what it is, but he is Lord and I have to follow him. Any of the desires that I have for myself and the way I want to write my own story, I have to completely submit to him. So the first hurdle or the first cost to being a disciple of Jesus is this, to realize and understand that he is Lord and he does not change with the shifting sands of our culture. He doesn't go from uh, east to west moving in different cultures and changing what it means that he's the Lord. From all time and in all cultures, Jesus is Lord. And that comes at a great cost. Now, why does that come at a great cost? Because it means we have to completely submit ourselves and all that we think and all that we believe to him. Um, notice, though, that the cost of discipleship is not quickly realized by following Jesus as Lord. It's most often realized over a period of time. So that's the second cost uh, that we're going to come to here in the cost of lordship and then Alex's busy writing notes about the sermon is the cost of worship. I want you to look at me in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. Evidently, it was because they wanted to get to him because they wanted to seize him. They wanted to grab him and get him to quit causing all the ruckus that he was causing. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, this is reasonable in any culture that a person's mother and brothers are there at the door that it must, that they get some priority, right? My own mother is here right now for this fortuitous occasion. I don't think she's trying to seize me, though, right? No, no, John's trying to seize me. And he, I'm sure I was, a, I was a kid, and you tried, and you seized me. Okay, anyway, sorry. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mothers and brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For, now I want you to pay very close attention to this phrase, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The cost of following Christ as Lord is seen in obedience. Okay? So that is to say that Jesus did not say, whoever prayed a prayer to receive me as their Savior when they were X years old is part of my family. He didn't say, whoever made a confession of faith and was baptized is my family. He did not say, anybody who's sitting in the building is my family. What he said is, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, it's very important that we compare this to other scripture, right? Because this is not the only scripture that talks about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. There are very clear scriptures that tell us we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses eight and nine, or 9 and 10 say we are not not by grace, by grace are you saved through faith, yet not of, not of your works, lest any man should boast. So he's not here at all promoting that salvation is an effect of doing enough good that we can obtain it. 
that he will let us into his family based on our good works, but somehow he is connecting doing the will of God with the disciple who is following him. So I want to try to define that for you. The cost of worship, what is worship? Worship is whatever thing you give ultimate value. Whatever thing that we give ultimate value is that thing that we worship. In our passage, the 12 disciples have come to follow Jesus. He's called them his mother and brother and sisters. Directly as they start following him, all of the cost is directed at Jesus. So you see, no criticism at this point has happened against the disciples, right? They are not being uh, criticized of being crazy or liars. But also, when do you think that this, that this persecution that they received, that Jesus received, is going to come to them? Matthew said it this way in chapter 10, verse 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So do you believe Jesus is Lord? This will cost you nothing as long as it's only in your head and not in your life. Even the demons believe Jesus is the Holy One of God, and they tremble. The cost of discipleship happens at the moment of very practical obedience. So his disciples are watching him. Soon, in chapter 6, Jesus is going to send them out in his name, and they're going to do the same miracles. They're going to cast out demons. This is looking forward to after his ascension into heaven, and his disciples were accused of the same things as he was accused. Soon they will do the will of God. Discipleship then begins with a decision to follow Jesus, but is confirmed in the supernatural process of, as, of worshiping Christ above all. Let me give you a few illustrations to try to connect this to the real world. The first, right here in this passage, Judas was one of the disciples who were sitting there. We just read in, chapter, in the same chapter, verse 19, that one of the 12 that Jesus chose to follow him was Judas. Now Judas was called the son of perdition the one who had betrayed Jesus. He appeared in every way for a time to be a disciple of Jesus. So discipleship, as we follow Christ, it begins with a decision, but it is confirmed through obedience. There was a, a lady on our first year serving in North Africa. She was a neighbor of ours. Um, our first month, in Morocco, I, my dad's going to remember this because Josie got so ill with a rotavirus that we thought that we didn't know what to do. For three days, she couldn't eat anything. Everything was going right through her. She'd drink a cup of water. Same clarity of water would come out on the other side within a minute. And that was really scary for her mom and dad as she lost weight. And we took her directly to a hospital. Nahid, our new neighbor, we'd only lived in the country for a month, came to the hospital, brought us food, took care of us like she was Jillian's new sister. Nahi became a close friend of our families. She ate at our home, and we ate at her home with her family. And we shared with her this truth that Jesus is Lord. 
and what he has done for us. And she read the New Testament with us. And this is months later, as she had been considering the claims of Jesus, she was crying uncontrollably with Chilean in our living room. And she said, I believe Jesus is Lord, but I cannot follow him while my parents are still alive. She saw that the cost of following, she believed with her mind that Jesus was Lord. She understood with her mind, and even with her heart to some extent, that everything that the Bible said about Jesus was true, but she said, I cannot follow him because of the cost that it will be to my family. The shame that it will bring to my family and the rejection that I will experience is too much for me to follow Jesus. From that moment, she never talked about Jesus again. So discipling, following Jesus is more than just acknowledging him as Lord. It is following him and worshiping him above all else. So at cost of everything else. Now, we have done our country a great disservice with, in some of our churches, and it's, I grew up in this type of thing, where we get people to pray, and then we tell them immediately, you've prayed now, now you're going to heaven, you've been saved. We, I had one guy, my barber this week, he, he found out I was a pastor, and he said, oh, I got a question for you. And I was like, all right, great, this is always interesting. What's your question? And he said, you guys believe in this once saved, always saved stuff, right? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I made a decision to follow Jesus, but I haven't been back to church in, a few, in like a decade, and I've got this real like, problem with alcohol, and I kind of don't want to give it up. So what do you believe about that? Am I still saved? And I'm like, brother, that's a big question. And we can't answer it with this simple phrase, once saved, always saved. I don't know if you ever, I don't, I don't hear that much anymore, but I heard it from my barber just this week. And so we have done a disservice to all the Judases who think that they follow Jesus at one point, it means forever they're a child of his. We also would do a greater disservice maybe, or an equally great one, to say that you are saved by your works. So what is Jesus then saying? They are who do the will of my Father. Jesus clarified in the Gospel of John, and he says, this is the will of my Father that you believe on him who sent me. So what does it mean to, be, to obey Jesus? It is a process of discipleship. Now, salvation is a thing that happens at faith. You are born new. Upon the moment that you believe on Christ, you receive as a gift of God, not of your works, because of the redeeming blood of Jesus, you are born new. But the reality of whether you were born new is seen throughout a process as we see, is this person obeying and following Jesus? Which is why we don't really like to baptize people on the same day that they claim that they're followers of Jesus. We've done this uh, many times in Morocco, we would baptize somebody. They are excited about this new gospel that they've just learned about. A little bit of pressure comes their way. Within a month or two, they're back to praying in the mosque saying, hey, forget what I said about that whole thing about Jesus. The pressure's too much. And we regret it at that point that we baptized them. Because a believer in Jesus isn't someone who just physically begins to take those steps, but it's someone who is born again that they love Christ above all other things. So, 
what does this mean for you and me? I've used some illustrations from some parts of the world where the cost to follow Jesus is quite high, right? And it confronts them immediately upon coming to Christ. You could lose your family, you could lose even your, your nation in some countries for following Jesus. I want you to notice the third, we talk about two costs, the cost of lordship, the cost of worship. I want to talk briefly about the reward of discipleship. Look what Jesus says here, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says this, here my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So the reward of discipleship, I said at the beginning, is more than we could possibly imagine. You could maybe say the reward of discipleship is presence and family. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, come and be with me. So to call, to be a disciple of Jesus is to literally be in the presence of God. Psalms 16 verse 11 says this, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the presence of God, there is a party that does not end. There is a peace that has no expiration. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. There is a joy that knows not even the first twinge of sadness. I think that you and I, in our fallen world, cannot yet understand what fullness of joy or pleasures forevermore feels like because our lives are full, are, are pushed, let's say that, they're, put, they're crowded into by sadness, by tragedy, by sickness, by broken relationships, by our own sin welling up in us. So imagine for a second, if you're married, this will be a, an illustration, uh, and if you're not married, you will be someday, inshallah, all right? So, Imagine for a second you're married, if you're not married, if you're married, imagine that you had a type of marriage that was fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore without any at all relational problem between you and your spouse. Both of you were in fact perfectly patient, perfectly kind, perfect mix of strength and tenderness, and you exercised it toward each other from the moment you are married in complete faithfulness. Can you imagine that? If you're married, you know your marriage probably doesn't sound like that all the time, right? That's a human relationship. Now, in the presence of God is joy forevermore, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. This is what awaits us in the job of disciples as the more than 12 of us get together, is to point each other toward the joys that are full and the pleasures that are forevermore when our eyes are tending towards the pleasures of this world and the joys of this world that will end and that are not full, whatever those things are. The job of disciples together and the job of the preaching of the word is to say, no, that thing that is drawing you, whether it's sin or whether it is um, a false pleasure that this world offers that is only temporary, is actually 
not even a, let's say, not even a coin compared to the riches that God gives you as a disciple of Jesus. So the reward is the presence of God and to be counted as his family. Jesus said, they are my brother and sister and mothers. The glory of the message that Mark was bringing when he said the good news of Jesus is that you Gentiles and Jews can be called the sons and daughters of God and Jesus. And that should strike us new every time we hear it as a reward beyond our possible imagination of how wonderful it is. Now, through Christ, though Christ came into this world through a physical family, this passage shows us that that family has no special place with God. That destroys the idea of the holy family that the church over many generations has developed as an errant theology. There is no holy family. There is God, the Father, who sent his Son. He alone is holy. The mother and the brothers and all of the family of Jesus needed to follow and submit themselves and receive the grace of God on an exact even plane with all of the other disciples of Jesus. This passage clearly tells us that. Now, why is this important to us? Because it opens up the door wide that Jesus is not some tribal God who came to be saving his family and lifting them up to a place of importance, but he came and he made us disciples. Now, that is astounding, the reward there, but it comes at a great cost. Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. What does it wait for? Does anybody know how that verse finishes? The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That we are his family is not yet clear. I'm not saying I don't have confidence and you don't have confidence. I'm saying you don't see any difference from you being a son of God or somebody who rejects Jesus entirely right now. You're just two people passing on a sidewalk. We can't tell the difference. But all of creation is waiting for a revealing of the sons of God, meaning that he is, in his return, going to receive us as his sons. And, it, and at that moment, it will be clear that you and I, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, are the sons and daughters of God. If you worship him above all other things. The, it, it is free to come to Jesus, but it is not cheap. You cannot get Jesus and everything else you want. You cannot get Jesus so that he will give you everything else you want right now. To come to Jesus, you have to completely submit to his lordship. And you have to give him value and worth above all other things. And the journey that you're on as a disciple of Jesus is showing and proving that you are sons and daughters of God. Here's what I mean. You may never have to choose between God and your parents the way Jesus did at that moment, or the way that some of the Muslim friends of mine have had to, or new, let's say, ex-Muslim, believing friends of a Muslim background. You may never have to choose between, 
I thank the Lord I don't have to choose between Jesus and my parents. But nobody, no disciple of Jesus, none, get out without paying a great cost. And here's what I mean. Do you love, do you value Jesus more than happiness? Because we're often taught in our culture, happiness is the main purpose for which I am alive. So I will do what makes me happy. To value Jesus above my happiness, says whatever that thing is that's not making me happy, if it's the will of God for me in Christ right now, I will do it. I will be happy doing it. Do you value him more than money? Every time we give to the Lord, every time we give of our money, what are we saying? I value God more than what I can do with this money. It is an act of worship. Do you value Christ more than your schedule because he's going to ask something of you with your schedule? And I don't mean just coming to church on Sunday as if that's a great sacrifice. I think it is a one place that we begin to say Christ is worthy for me to come and join with my brothers, but you know, he's going to ask you to serve and give of yourself. And then in the process of being sent and serving others, the disciples were made into disciples. So in the process of you serving others and giving of your time and of your, of your precious uh, space of, of time, you are saying, Christ, I worship you more than this. Do you worship him more than your fears? My grandmother was afraid of water, and I baptized her a few years ago at almost 80 or past 80 years old. What's that? She's, she was 87 when I baptized her? Okay, wow. So she, I, I knew she was 80-something, but she said, nobody came to her and said, Margaret, you need to be baptized. But she felt... I want to be baptized before I see Jesus. I am dead. She's from West Virginia. You know the song, West Virginia, Stranger to Blue Waters? That was my grandma, Stranger to Blue Waters. She didn't like water. She was deathly afraid of water, but she said, I want to be baptized before I see Jesus because I want to be obedient to him. I want him to know that I'm obedient to him. For her, it was a fear of water. I don't think that happens to most of us. But that was, her, that was one thing for her, is that you might have to make sacrifices in your career. You could get beyond your success, and if you, could, you could go beyond where you're at. If you would just sacrifice the family that God's given you to love, and the wife and children, for example, that God's given you to love, you could be beyond where you could be, but Jesus has clearly commanded you to love your wife and to love your children, but will you love him and obey him in that thing at the sacrifice of certain things. Some of you single people, will you love Jesus and find him more worthy of that girlfriend or boyfriend who says, well, actually, I don't love Jesus like you do. And Jesus has told us, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Are you gonna say, well, I love Jesus more than I love you, as much as I love you? So every Christian, every day of our lives, come to this cost of worship, where Christ or something else. So here is what I'd love to do after the service. I'm just going to ask you to do this. If Alex, you want to go to the next one. After we pray, I want you to share something with each other. I want you to share your testimonies. We're not going to do that right now. We're not going to take time to do that. But I want you to share your testimonies with each other. What I mean is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have had to find him more worthy or of greater value 
than something else at some point. So what has that been for you? Create conversation in your home about that. Ask, if you're, if you're married, ask your spouse what was the hardest thing or the biggest thing that was a hurdle to you following Jesus. And it could have been asked through your conversion, but something that costs you and you chose Jesus even over that thing that you want. Um, and do that with friends as well and share testimonies with each other and how Christ has shown that he is worthy of that and how you're glad you've done that, how he strengthened you and encouraged you. And second thing is ask for prayer. Some of you are facing something right now where you're having to decide between Christ, obedience to him, or that thing you want, that thing you desire, and it's difficult, and you need to ask for prayer from fellow disciples. Jesus 12, chose 12 disciples. We do this thing together. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this stupendous privilege of being with you, you and us, the hope of glory, and that you would call us sons and daughters is more than we could ever imagine the great honor that it is to be your family. And Lord, now I pray for every child and teenager and married person in this room and every, everybody that's wanting to be married and all these desires that we have in life that Christ would be worthy to us above all of the things that in our hearts that make us want to choose them over obedience to Jesus. Our very souls depend upon it. And I pray that you would be lifted up in our hearts today and that we would gladly worship you and say to you that the trials and struggles of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be in Christ Jesus at your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.